welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners finding the show. Very happy to have you. Very excited to have um, a, a guest on today who is a returning guest to this show, but somebody who I respect tremendously, whose knowledge um, uh, I think is, is second to none and frankly has informed a lot of my understanding over the last seven years or so. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into that. Yanis Varoufakis is here on the program with me. Uh, probably doesn't need so much of an introduction to most of you guys, but Yanis Varoufakis was the former finance minister in Greece. Uh, he is an economist, an author, uh, now a well, in effect, a political organizer. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Yanis Varoufakis, uh, YanisVarafakis.eu as well. I'll link to all of these in the bio. And uh, also, I would recommend Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. That's DM 2025. Uh, DM25.org is the website. We're going to talk a lot about that as well. And if I could just also plug uh, his most recent book, Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European and American Deep Establishment absolutely required reading. And one other book I'm just going to plug here because this was my introduction to Giannis's work about seven, eight years ago, uh, and that is The Global Minotaur. I think probably one of the best, if not the best book written about the global economic crisis in post-2008. So do pick up copies of both of those books. Giannis Varoufakis, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you very much, Eric. It's a great pleasure to be back. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to have you back. Um, so we are, of course, limited on time. Your schedule is, I'm sure, incredibly busy. So let me ask you very quickly, right up front, talking about the economic and political crisis that is really affecting much of the global north today. You've said a number of times that, in your opinion, everything changed after 2008. The political and economic logic of the pre-2008 world simply doesn't apply or doesn't apply in the same way in our current political and economic landscape. Can you explain what you mean by that? There are moments in capitalist uh, history when the terrain changes so much that no roadmap that one has been using uh, can be useful anymore. If you think about it, if you think of 1929, the time when the stock exchange in Wall Street crashed Uh, And along with it, the Roaring Twenties came to a very abrupt end. Suddenly, all conventional wisdom, which was uh, quite useful up until 1929 to predict what was going on in the United States, in Europe, in Japan at the time, it just evaporated. Nothing made sense anymore after 1929 in terms of the language, the ideology, the economic thinking that prevailed uh, from the moment that Thomas Edison started creating the first networked company or Henry Ford up until the stock exchange collapsed in 1929. I believe that our generation experienced a similar moment in uh, 2008. In 2008, uh, everything that seemed uh, uh, so predictable, uh, recall uh, that Ben Bernanke, Uh, who eventually became the chairman of the Fed, had uh, dubbed the period uh, before 2008 as the Great Moderation. We look back now at what was going on in the financial sector prior to 2008, and suddenly what seemed like a pretty uh, believable story about that Great Moderation seems like an absurdity today. So 
there is there are moments of discontinuity in history and i believe 2008 was our generation's discontinuity and it marks the beginning of a new era uh the crisis of 2008 has not gone away we can see the repercussions everywhere from donald trump occupying the white house to bolsonaro taking over brazil to the fragmentation of the european union to the rise of fascist forces across europe these are all symptoms of uh, the 2008 moment in history. I think there's a lot to be said and a lot to unpack from that. And I want to just ask you, since it relates directly to that uh, analysis, the question of austerity, because I know that austerity is really one of the central issues that kind of informs all of these others that you've just mentioned. And I know you've described in, in a number of your books, uh, austerity as shifting the burden, as a shifting of the burden of the weight of what's come up until this point, shifting that burden onto the working class and onto the poor. Can you you talk about that uh, austerity as shifting the burden and how that fuels the far right that we're seeing now. Austerity, in a way, is uh, the manifestation uh, of um, a class struggle, a class war waged against the poor and against the working class in an era of uh, great recession. Uh, let's define our terms. What do we mean by austerity? Austerity, in my book, at least, in my proverbial book, right, in my mindset, um, is um, the myth or the mythical attempt by governments during the bad times, during periods of recession, to limit the degree of public debt, the magnitude of public debt, by means of public expenditure cuts or increases in taxation. So belt tightening during a recession, during the bad times, for the purposes of uh, limiting the growth of public debt. That is my definition of austerity. Uh, and which, you know, my country is the champion of austerity. It was practiced here after 2010 relentlessly. But in a sense, it was also practiced in the United States under the Obama administration after the initial spurt of some stimulus, which was, of course, countered by austerity at the level of state expenditure at the state level, uh, there was an attempt to consolidate the budget to reduce uh, the rate of growth of, of debt by means of spending cuts. And indeed, uh, austerity was also practiced by the Clinton administration, as you will recall. Uh, it was practiced by social democratic parties in Europe, by Christian democratic or conservative parties in Europe. That is effectively the, the whole idea. For, and the tragedy is that austerity makes absolutely no sense, not even from a capitalist point of view. Uh, it is always doomed to fail. Uh, in other words, you can never uh, rein in public debt during recessionary periods by means of uh, government expenditure cuts, because as I keep <laughs> repeating, uh, at the level of the family, of uh, your private business, a parsimony, belt tightening works. If you can't make ends meet, and if, you, if, if you're in the red, you need to cut down on your expenditure. There's no doubt about that. If you don't, then you're foolish. But it never works at the level of a macroeconomy because the whole point of a recession is that you have shrinking private expenditure. If while private expenditure at the level of a macroeconomy shrinking, you reduce public expenditure, then the sum of private and public expenditure 
diminishes and the sum of private and public expenditure is national income. So effectively what you're doing is you're reducing national income and therefore you're reducing your taxation. Your tax receipts. So even though you're cutting government expenditure, you're also cutting your tax receipts. So your, your, your debt continues to grow. So the question therefore is why do they practice it? Uh, are they dumb? Don't they know that austerity never works? No, they know that austerity doesn't work. But it is a fantastic means of shifting the burdens of a financial crisis like that of 2008 onto the shoulders of the weaker citizens. This is why I refer to it as an instrument of class struggle, of class war perpetrated against the weak. I think that's 100% correct. And there's, of course, political ramifications to that. Obviously, uh, austerity, uh, particularly in Europe, contributes to the rise of the far right that we're seeing all over, whether talking about um, the focus, excessive focus and distorted and racist focus on migration, whether it's simply just talking about reasons why the far right gained support in the way that it did. I think that it, it certainly plays a role in all of that. And one aspect of that that's very interesting that we've witnessed, especially in Europe and also in the United States, maybe to a lesser extent, is this what I would call almost a mutually beneficial relationship between neoliberal capitalists and the far-right fascists. In other words, they reinforce one another, and it's almost true that one almost can't exist without the other in the contemporary landscape. Uh, What do you think about this sort of, dare I say, dialectical kind of relationship between neoliberals and fascists? that you're spot on, there is codependence, complete codependence. Uh, Look look at, for instance, uh, here in Europe, look at uh, Emmanuel Macron, the, um, you know, the president of France. He would never have been elected if it was not for the neo-fascists. The only reason why he was elected was because of Marine Le Pen, the leader of the National Front. Uh, look at the way in which um, fascism is now reasserting itself in Italy with Matteo Salvini, the strongman behind the new government in Italy. It is the discontent caused by austerity, by the establishment, by the liberal establishment that Mr. Salvini supposedly loads, that has made uh, the political career of Mr. Salvini. And at the same time, the establishment needs somebody like Mr. Salvini because um, German Chancellor, the President of the European Commission, Mr. Juncker, uh, they they turn around and they say, well, yes, okay, we have made mistakes, but if it's not us, it's Mr. Salvini. So they are they may they may not like one another. They may, I'm not saying that this is an intentional. Um, kind of partnership between the liberal establishment, which, by the way, is not particularly liberal, liberal nor very well established these days, but what is called the liberal establishment and the neo-fascists or the races, on the other hand. But functionally speaking, functionally, and I think your, your use of the word dialectically is uh, spot on, uh, they, uh, they love each other. They should love each other. They are each other's best uh, aides and helpers. Yeah, it's almost as if one acts as a foil for the other, to use sort of the literary terminology and, and, and you know, kind of forcing people into this into this position, forcing voters in particular into that position. Certainly that was the case in France uh, with the Le Pen-Macron election. And to some extent, we've seen, we've seen similar uh, situations in the United States, though the United States, I think, has unique conditions. Now, I, I would like to shift gears a little bit and ask you a U.S.-specific question, because I think 
that in some ways it may be an outlier or maybe not, depending on how you view this. Um, Trump and Trump's uh, ascendance into power was at various times, especially as this was uh, occurring, described even by some leftists as kind of, uh, you know, a reaction against neoliberalism, a reaction against the hollowing out of the white working class, that this was a white working class backlash against Clinton, neoliberalism, free trade, all of these things. But in my own research, my own work that I've published and many others have as well, when you actually dive into the numbers and you look at the actual analyses, you find that the real base of Trump's support is not white working class voters. It's white petit bourgeois. It is the white small business owner. It is the white capitalist, the middle class to upper middle class white person, particularly male, that really respects and loves Donald Trump and really rode him into power. So can you talk a little bit about this sort of maybe it's a misconception between Trump and the working class? Well, Trump, like every American president, uh, needs uh, support from different social classes in order to win. Nobody wins only on the basis of blue color uh, sentiment or just the petty bourgeoisie. Uh, Trump has had quite uh, broad support from different parts, you know, all the way from Goldman Sachs down to uh, blue collar workers uh, from the Rust Belt. There's no doubt about that. Uh, uh, but uh, Eric, you know, I've been scouring over data as well over the last few years, trying to make sense of the Donald Trump phenomenon. And uh, I will um, confess to you that I was also scratching my head. And in the end, there's one statistic that convinced me uh, of the, you know, the causation behind the Donald Trump phenomenon. <laughs> I may be wrong. I would like your opinion on this, but let me share it with you. I was looking at data about various consumer goods and expenditure and so on. And it turns out that in 2016, <laughs> the year of Mr. Trump, uh, we had for the very first time since 1955, the following phenomenon, more than half of American families could not afford to purchase the cheapest car, new car on the market, which turns out from what I was reading that it's a Nissan that retails for $14,000. And when I say that they couldn't afford that, I didn't just I don't just mean that they didn't have fourteen thousand dollars. No, it's worse than that. Um, it includes those who did not have fourteen thousand dollars, and also those who did, were not credit worthy enough to get a loan for fourteen thousand dollars. So when in an, in in a country like the United States, where without a car, uh, unless you live in Manhattan, you don't exist. You can't go to the shopping mall. You can't uh, drive uh, your kids to school. You cannot go to the supermarket. You can't go to work. When more than 50% of families can't buy the cheapest car, uh, you realize the extent to which the petty bourgeoisie uh, has been squeezed. Uh, and that, to me, is a very good uh, uh, explanatory factor for the Donald Trump phenomenon. It's very interesting. I hadn't I hadn't seen that uh, particular statistic, and I think that I could I would just uh, uh, add maybe a slightly different perspective on that because while that's certainly noteworthy, I also think a study I believe it was from the Urban Institute. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at my notes on that, but uh, found that of the seventy, I think it was of the seventy five highest uh, rated voting districts in terms of credit scores, median credit scores, Donald. 
Trump won, I believe, 71 out of 75 of those districts. In other words, those with the best credit typically are those voting districts that are primarily white and those voting districts primarily went to Donald Trump. In other words, I think that it, uh, an argument could be made that the it, it was whiteness rather than poverty that really drove the Trump phenomenon. Yes, yes. I, I don't think it's poverty that drove the phenomenon, but it is diminishing prospects. Uh, I, I believe that most uh, social phenomena are best understood not in terms of um, stocks, but in terms of flows, not in terms of uh, um, magnitudes, but in terms of directions of change. So it's the diminishing prospects of the middle class in the United States that fuel the Trump phenomenon. So if you look at, uh, for instance, the um, state by state, if you look at states like California, uh, that uh, Trump did not win. Uh, the, it, it's not so much that that, that um, uh, he was uh, that that you can explain voting intentions on the basis of income, but if you look at the rate of change of income and you look at areas where people may be well off or reasonably well off, better off than most poor people, but who's uh, who are being squeezed, who are on a downward trajectory. That is where you will find the greatest uh, proportion of Trump votes. So, in a sense, it is a crisis of uh, confidence in um, in prosperity that uh, the 2008 uh, moment in history, as we were saying before, um, occasioned, and the colossal failure of the Obama administration to invest in the hope that was um, um, invested in them, in that particular administration. That, I think, is uh, what has given rise to the Trump phenomenon. Uh, and of course, uh, and that's a good point that you, that you raised, um, on the one hand, he appeals to the, to, to the petty bourgeois that are being squeezed, while at the same time offering remarkable tax cuts to the very rich and to the very creditworthy so he, it's, a, it's a double whammy. He gets support both from the very rich and from the diminishing uh, ranks of the petty bourgeoisie. Absolutely. And another and another uh, point on that before we move on and talk about some of the other work that you've been doing is the simple fact that Donald Trump benefits from, as you said, a double whammy, but also from a uh, let's call it a sort of a segmentation of the ruling class. In other words, what I didn't understand, and, and I didn't understand this until after Trump had already won and was already uh, coming into office, was that the ruling class was not truly united behind Hillary Clinton, that it was segments of the ruling class that had departed from that consensus backing Donald Trump, and particularly those segments of the ruling class whose interests are tied to the national economy rather than a more internationalized uh, economic system. And so you've seen a lot of support from the you know various industries that benefit from a more national economic orientation. Now, there's, of course, bumps in that analysis as well, and that is not a clear black and white. But I do think that one of the reasons why Donald Trump was able to succeed was because he was not truly anti-establishment. He was anti-certain sectors of the establishment. Indeed, indeed. Uh, he was, uh, look, if you look at his background, he, he, he was certainly uh, 
in favor of plutocracy. Uh, he's a plutocrat, that's what he is. He's a conman and a plutocrat. So he was not exactly uh, some kind of revolutionary raising the red flag. <laughs> but as you put it, there are many business interests in the United States that have suffered from globalization that have not had the capacity to diversify like the large multinational corporations. And uh, in any case, this is not just an American phenomenon. You'll find this, for instance, in Germany. In German capital, capital is segmented in three um, different categories. There are the large companies like Volkswagen and Siemens and Deutsche Bank that are international. Uh, there, is the, there is then the middle stand, the companies uh, that are producing primarily within Germany. They have very, very different interests. And then there are the German banks. Something similar uh, pertains to the United States. You have three kinds of businesses, more generally speaking, the ones that are truly global. Uh, and they, they, they were the ones who were in favor of the Clinton-Bush uh, consensus and the Washington consensus. Then there were the... Uh, the, the small businesses that are very local. And then thirdly, you've got the businesses that are particularly tied together with um, uh, versions of uh, the, the, the United States uh, government complex. So pharmaceuticals that are part of the medical industrial complex or um, arms uh, dealers that are uh, connected to the military industrial complex. And not all of them, uh, support Hillary Clinton. Some of them supported, as you put it, Donald Trump. Exactly right. And I have to I have to confess, the last time that you were on this show was in the midst of the election. I believe it was August of 16, but I'd, I'd have to go back and check. Uh, and uh, we discussed and had a, a bit of a disagreement about uh, whether or not critical support for Hillary Clinton was really, uh, you know, on the table and should be required. And at the time, I, I, I didn't think that Trump was as much of a threat as he obviously was. I actually thought that Hillary was more or less a foregone conclusion and was really still stealing myself to prepare organizing against Hillary Clinton and what I assumed would be her foreign policies and so forth. And of course, I pro I was proven to be very wrong and your analysis was proven correct. And the question I have is, is that really what's on offer all over Europe today as well? Is that the sort of uh, Hobson's choice that everyone faces? Or as I think you're working towards, are we seeing the development of uh, alternatives? Well, we have a duty to create, cultivate, and promote alternatives. Um, we, can all, we cannot spend our days and lives um, choosing the lesser evil like you had to uh, in November of 2016. Um, but at the same time, yes, you're quite right. Uh, the, the, the peoples of Europe are now facing this uh, tussle between a liberal establishment, which is creating the circumstances for Europe's fragmentation, which is then feeding the political monsters of the right and the political monsters of the right. What we are trying to do as DiEM25 is to, just you know, to be the wedge that goes in between and provides the third alternative. Um, you, you, you quite rightly said that the introduction earlier on in our discussion that the liberal establishment and the fascists are effectively accomplices. And what we need to do is we need to show that uh, um, there is a tussle, but on the one hand, 
you have the liberal establishment and the fascists being effectively on the same side. And on the other side, you have a progressive movement, which is humanistic. Uh, it is internationalist. We do not propose to put up, put up border fences, unlike the Donald Trumps of the world. We do not want to separate our countries. We do not want to say, you know, Germany first or Greece first or France first. Uh, there's no uh, uh, socialist na uh, nationalist uh, road. There's no socialist nationalist alternative to um, the national socialists, the Nazis, the fascists. We are internationalists, but we make uh, a great distinction. We draw a great distinction between being globalist and being internationalist. The difference being that internationalists are all about solidarity between working classes. They're all about, um, yes, removing all, all, all barriers, all border fences when it comes to goods, when it comes to services, when it comes to people, actually. Uh, but we do not believe in the freedom of capital to move about unimpeded when people are boxed in and walled in particular jurisdictions. I think that's very well said, and it obviously raises a couple of questions that are, I think, particularly relevant to those of us who are on the left and who consider ourselves leftists and Marxists and so forth. Um, I guess, I guess maybe an introduction to that would be Brexit and to talk a little bit about Brexit and, and what that actually means. But before we can even touch that, I want to just ask you very simply, can a leftist view the European Union as something other than a vehicle for capitalist control and domination. In other words, I have seen a lot of arguments against the European Union, whether it's from the Lexit perspective or from a Greek perspective or from various perspectives, saying the European Union cannot be reformed. This is a fool's errand, and the only thing to do is to smash it. And so I guess I, I just want to hear from you, why is that so wrong? Allow me to answer with a question. Do you believe, as a U.S. citizen, that the American federal government and federal system, do you believe that it is reformable? Do you believe that, don't you think that it was put together in order to work as a bulwark against the interests of the working class? Don't you think that the whole, uh, the panoply of the American state uh, was created in order to uh, aid and abet the capital accumulation of large business interests? <laughs> You see where, what I'm getting at. Uh, Every yeah, yes, state, yes, and yes. Yes, yes, and yes. Every state apparatus was created not in order to help the many achieve prosperity, share prosperity, but it was created in order to uh, abet the interests of capital accumulation of the oligarchy. Whenever elections were um, scheduled or organized or in made part of the constitution. This was only in order to ensure that the many, the ohoi polloi, as you would say in the United States, um, are given a sense, um, the illusion of uh, being consulted when in the, in the end, through the way that the electoral system is created, uh, they never get their hands, their dirty hands on the levers of power. All state apparatuses have been created in order to keep the many, keep the demos away from democracy, to ensure that the, the few uh, continue 
to rule oligarchically with a veneer of democratic legitimation. That was the case in the United States. That was the case with my my, my own country, the state apparatus, state apparatus here in Greece, in Germany, and so on. Same applies to the European Union. There is no doubt that it was a construct along the lines of a cartel of big business, uh, which then acquired a huge bureaucracy. It even acquired the European Parliament, which is a parliament only in name, in order to hide the fact that um, uh, it was a cartel. Um, it was definitely an instrument for neoliberal politics and economics after the 1970s, after Mrs. Thatcher and Mr. Reagan uh, con- per- persuaded conservative forces that they must not, no longer share any amount of their wealth with the working class. There's no doubt about that. But we never, as left-wingers, proposed in Britain, in the United States, in Greece, to disintegrate the instruments of the state. Let me put it this way. We need a central bank. Even if we have socialism, we need a central bank. We need an investment bank. In Europe, we have something called the European Investment Bank. It's a magnificent organization. What I would like to do is, together with my colleagues and comrades across Europe, is to take it over, to take it over and use it in order to invest in the green technologies and the green transition, which is essential for the planet and essential for our people. I don't want to to smash it. I want to take it over. This is what revolution is. You take over the instruments of the state and you make them work for the many, not for the few. You do not smash them. I mean, if you're an anarchist, you may have very good arguments as to why power corrupts and uh, great power corrupts greatly. But that is not an argument which uh, is convincing coming from the left, from the socialist left. Uh, Anarchists, I respect entirely. I don't know what we will do after we smash the instruments of the state, what kind of society we're going to have. Because I cannot see the self-organizing, stateless society uh, being consistent with, uh, um, you know, mass technologies, um, uh, civilization as we understand it. And this is why I'm not an anarchist, even though I respect anarchists enormously. But uh, even though, so to to conclude, even though I respect um, the view that the EU machinery must be smashed, when it comes from anarchists, I cannot fathom it when it comes from colleagues of mine from the left. That's a that's an interesting distinction, and I guess my the follow up question to that is uh, how do we then read uh, Labour and Jeremy Corbyn vis a vis Brexit? Because this does seem to be a little bit more of a complication uh, to all of this analysis, where. I mean, I certainly would like to see Jeremy Corbyn's position be clear, consistent, and in favor of a internationalist politics as you're describing it, but I don't think that that's what we're seeing, and certainly the the sort of uh, very delicate Brexit situation puts him in a political bind, I would imagine, but how do you read uh, Corbyn and Labour vis-a-vis Brexit and uh, your project in Europe? Well, I must tell you that uh, with Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, his shadow treasurer, uh, we campaigned together before the Brexit referendum in Britain against Brexit. And our position was nuanced, but very clear. And I have to tell you that my position is almost identical with that of Jeremy Corbyn. There's one small difference, which I will explain later. But let me defend the position. 
And I would do it by stating what our slogan was. And I stood on the stage and I uttered those words. And so did Corbyn's people in Britain, across the country, in 13 different cities where I campaigned personally. In the EU, in the European Union, against this European Union. That was our slogan. And we fought for Brexit to be defeated. Uh, Having said that, just like Jeremy Corbyn, so did I and my colleagues at DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement, the day that um, leave Brexit won, we, unlike many other Remainers, um, recognized that um, as Democrats, we had the duty to accept our defeat, to accept the verdict of the referendum. When you enter into a referendum campaign, and you are on the losing side, as a Democrat, you've got to say, okay, well, tough, we lost, but now we need to respect the verdict of the people. To turn around to, especially to left-wing people in Northern England or in coastal England, who felt that the establishment had left them behind, the establishment that loved to take holidays in continental Europe and to do business with Europe, the establishment who... uh, effectively reduced their social housing, their uh, Medicare and National Health Service uh, funding, and at the same time pointed the finger at them and said that you are Neanderthals and uncivilized for having voted in favor of Brexit. Uh, We could not, as Democrats and progressives, turn around and say to those people uh, that your vote can't count because it came on the wrong side of history. So... Jeremy's, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's position has been that, yes, he fought against Brexit, Brexit won, but now we have to move on. And our, my position and the position of DiEM25 has been uh, minimize harm from Brexit, but at the same time uh, introduce the kind of Brexit which is consistent with the verdict of the people of Britain. It's a nuanced position, but it is one that I think is absolutely, the, um, you know, we are duty-bound to taking such a nuanced position. But allow me to say about Brexit that um, the, the fact now is that we are we have a complete impasse because there are three possible outcomes at the moment. Uh, we, we are weeks away from uh, Britain uh, effectively falling out of the EU uh, by default uh, because there is this process. If, none, if, if nothing happens, if we are an automatic pilot on the 29th of March, Britain is out of the EU without a deal. So there are three possible outcomes. This, you know, a no-deal exit. Uh, the deal that Mrs. May, the British Prime Minister, came back from Brussels, which is um, it's a kind of document one signs only after having been defeated at war. It's a, it's a surrender document to the, to the EU. The EU gets everything for Britain, and uh, Britain gets nothing out of the EU. It is quite a preposterous agreement that she's, she's brought back from Brussels. It's, got, it's the worst of all possible worlds. And then the third option is to to reverse Brexit, to rescind Brexit. Uh, and it is quite interesting, is it not, that none of these three options have a majority either in the British Parliament or amongst the British people. Uh, now, many of the commentators, both of the left and the right in Britain, lament this as uh, a sign that British democracy has failed, that the Brits uh, have lost it, they don't know what to do. I don't. I see this as a remarkable 
um, uh, insight on the part of the British people. I see it. Uh, I see their reluctance to line up behind any of these three options as collective wisdom, because the way that the Brexit debate is being uh, portrayed, it is, as, it is as, if, as if it is a technical matter that has to do with whether Britain is inside the EU or not. In reality, however, if you think about it, the, what Brexit has done is to bring to the fore a number of crucial issues uh, about Britain, about the people of Britain. Uh, it's a question of the, 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 the it brings up, up the question of what kind of business model does the British economy need? This over-reliance on the financial sector, is this something that we want in Britain? Do the British people need that reliance on the city of London? Is this a good thing? for the majority of people. I think it's not. I think it's, uh, there is a finance curse, like Nigeria has an oil curse. Uh, there's a question of Ireland, and I, a question that has not been answered yet, and Brexit brings it up in important and pressing ways. There's the question of Scotland. There's the question of England, because England does not have a parliament, whereas Scotland has a parliament, Wales has an assembly. So there is a big democratic deficit across England outside of London. And that has caused a lot of discontent, which has fueled Brexit. Uh, there is the party system and the first past, past the post electoral system, which prevents the formation of new progressive political parties. There is the role of referenda that has been brought to, into sharp focus by the recent referendum. Does, do we want um, a Swiss-like uh, combination of uh, uh, a series of referenda and parliamentary democracy? There is the question of the House of Commons and sovereignty. So all these questions cannot be answered simply by saying, oh, rescind uh, Brexit or let's get out without a deal. So this is a fantastic opportunity, and this is what DiEM25 is pushing for, for um, a democratic debate, a people's debate in Britain about what people want. And in the context of this debate, they can also answer the question of what kind of arrangements they want to have with the European Union. It's very interesting to watch over the next couple of months. I promised that I was going to keep us around the 45-minute mark, so I, I want to just move on and ask a couple last questions. Um, you've recently made some very important announcements, one uh, in regard to the Progressive International, and um, you, uh, Bernie Sanders fits into that, and U.S. progressive politics, of course, fits into that as well. Tell us a little bit about that uh, that the recent formation that was announced, what Bernie Sanders' role is, and I would also, if I could like to get your analysis of Bernie Sanders and progressive politics in the upcoming 2020 U.S. election. As a European internationalist, we cannot, I cannot possibly accept that our internationalism ends where Europe ends. I don't even know where Europe ends, <laughs> where the actual borders of Europe are. In other words, if our argument that we need international solutions for Europe, uh, this is the DiEM25 argument, if that argument holds water, then clearly those international solutions must uh, embrace the whole planet. We cannot sort out the problem of climate change as Europeans if we don't combine forces with Americans, with South Americans, with Asians, with Africans to do it. We cannot sort out the problem of climate change without sorting out the manner in which wealth will be um, shifted from the global north to the global south. 
We cannot deal with poverty in our continent, your continent, Africa, if we don't have a poverty-fighting model across the world. We must reconsider the way in which the monetary system and the financial system is working in a way that resembles what happened in 1944 with the Bretton Woods system, where the New Dealers in power at the time in Washington, D.C., utilizing the fact that the world was at war, um, created a new blueprint uh, for a new monetary system, the Bretton Woods system, where bankers effectively were defunct and uh, the financial genie was put back into the bottle. These are all issues. Um, especially the climate change fighting uh, issue, where we need something like eight to nine trillion dollars being spent on the green transition globally. Where will the money come from? Who's going to pay for it? How are we going to combine it with social reforms and um, wealth transfers across the world? These are questions that we as Europeans cannot, cannot answer on our own. You as Americans cannot answer on your own. The Asians cannot answer it. The Chinese, the Indians, the Mexicans cannot answer it. Therefore, we need to come together. After 2008, the bankers got together because the financiers are fantastic at being internationalists, and so did the fascists. You see Netanyahu and Bolsonaro and Kurz and Salvini banding together. Only the progressives are not bound, bound together. So that is what the progressive internationalists is an attempt for us to come together and answer collectively these great questions, these pressing challenges and issues. Uh, need questions that we combinedly uh, combine. We 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 put together uh, collaboratively as progressives ac- across the world. So, with the Sanders Institute, DiEM25 and the Sanders Institute issued an open call on the 30th of November in Vermont. Bernie Sanders was there. I was there. Others were there. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, New York, was there. Uh, and. Now we are embarking upon a very difficult process, a very exciting process. Uh, every six months we're going to be meeting, but the interesting work is going to be taking, taking place in real time, continuously, between those meetings, to put together an international Green New Deal document that answers these questions. Because it, this will be a major contribution to, to progressive movements around the world. Because at the moment, Eric, each one of us in different countries has, we, we're trying to invent the wheel on our own. Uh, but these big questions, if we have answers to these big questions globally, then it's very easy and very pleasant to uh, fashion our national agendas in a way that they are consistent and compatible with the international Green New Deal agenda. So this is what we're doing now regarding Bernie Sanders. I was personally overjoyed to see in the midterms the rise of democratic socialist candidates, especially women, uh, through the ranks, uh, winning seats in Congress and elsewhere, uh, in municipalities and state elections uh, here, there and everywhere. That, I think, we owe to a very large extent to the Bernie Sanders uh, revolution, uh, political revolution in 2016. Uh, I very much fear that um, these are early days. I do not believe that this uh, growth of uh, democratic socialism in the United States, which is extremely welcome and very a, a, a fantastic development, that this is self-sustaining at this stage. I wish it were, but I don't believe it is. This is why I think that... Uh, that Bernie Sanders must run again for 2020 because he's the only figure in American politics 
that can maintain, nurture, and uh, grow this uh, dynamic that we saw flourish in the midterms. I think that I think that there's a lot to be said for that. And um, I guess the, the, the final question I just want to ask you is tell us a little bit about your own uh, recent announcements and your own, um, I, I don't want to say it, <laughs> ambitions as if it's a negative word, but your own political ambitions, because I think that's also important so that people uh, not only are following DM25 and the Progressive International, but are following what you individually are doing. So tell us a little bit about that, because it's fairly uh, interesting, exciting and probably pretty unique. In May 2019, we have European Parliament elections across Europe. Even though the European Parliament is not the real Parliament, we can't change the world or Europe through it. Nevertheless, it is a magnificent opportunity because we have elections happening on the same day or the same week across Europe. And we, as a transnational internationalist movement, DiEM25, we have an opportunity to put our program, which we call, by the way, the Green New Deal for Europe. We can put it across Europe to different electorates and say, we are the first political party, political movement that has a plan for Europe. We are not treating like other political parties across Europe, the European Parliament elections as a glorified uh, opinion poll for our national elections, but we are coming to you with a genuinely transnational pan-European agenda for change, uh, which is technically competent and and politically uh, progressive. Uh, so we're going to have one list. We're going to run across Europe. This has never happened before. Nobody has tried this before. It's very difficult. We have next to no funding for that. Uh, and uh, to demonstrate the transnationality and the texture of what we're trying to do, I'm going to be leading our Greek party here. Uh, DiEM25 has uh, created a Greek party, a German party, a Polish party. The Greek part is called Mera 25, because Mera in Greek means DiEM, day. Uh, and I'm going to be leading the party list in the national parliament elections in Greece, while at the very same time being a candidate for European Parliament of our sister party in Germany, which is called Demokratie in Europa, set up by DiEM25 in Germany. So I will be running for the European Parliament in Germany and for the Greek Parliament in Greece. Similarly, the German colleague will be running in the European Parliament in Greece. <laughs> uh, so we are signaling true internationalism by doing this. Personally, I don't have any ambitions other than to end this endless and toxic tussle between the forces of an establishment which is imposing austerity upon the many in socialism and the bankers on the one hand and the fascists that are rising up on the other. We want to be that wedge. Our only ambition is to create hope that there can be an alternative. I think that's very well said. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for giving me your time. I know your schedule is so busy uh, these days. Uh, listeners, you can follow Yanis on Twitter at Yanis Varoufakis. That's uh, uh, Y-A-N-I-S-V-A-R-O-U-F-A-K-I-S. YanisVarafakis.eu is the website to follow all of his work personally. And again, the movement DM25, Democracy in Europe, Movement 25. That's D-I-E-M 25.org. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for coming back on Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you, Eric, and keep going. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again real soon.